Hello, and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I am your host, Phil Shiroki, and today we are going to continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in this particular episode, we are going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus addresses the issue of divorce. And the section here, the subsection in my Spiritful Life New King James Version Bible calls this particular passage, Marriage is Sacred and Binding. So again, we are going to start in Matthew. We're going to jump around a little bit in the Old Testament, jump up into the New Testament, um, look at some cool passages in Revelation, and... um, yeah, we'll finish up probably in 1 Corinthians. So, without any further ado, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, as we continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus addresses marriage being sacred and binding. Alrighty, and like I said, we are going to start out, we will start out by reading the passage in Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount, again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, and then we will get into some different looks at some different parts of scripture. So, it says here, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality or fornication causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Let's look at the notes here again in my Spirit-Filled Life New King James Version Bible for that section of Matthew chapter 5. The Pharisees interpreted Moses' teaching on divorce to mean that a man could divorce his wife at virtually any whim. Jesus here counters their abuse, restricting divorce to the grounds of sexual immorality, a term which means any deviation that clearly defined biblical standards for sexual activity. So what we're going to look at is actually where it says there how the Pharisees, the religious people of the time, had basically misinterpreted Moses' teaching on divorce. Um, Before we do that, we're actually going to flip to, again, this truth in action section of Luke. Um, Very pertinent, very very, uh, relatable to a lot of what is spoken of in... um, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this particular section, we're going to look at where it says here, understand that divorce must never be employed as an expedient. Recognize that divorce upsets the intended, created, or order, and is therefore sin. So, um, look, I speak on this topic um, from unfortunate experience And um, I am by no means sitting here, you know, in a position of authority, quote unquote, nor am I sitting here with my nose looking down at anyone because I know, believe me firsthand, the ins and outs, the intricacies, the complications of, 
um, our modern day that we live in of marriage, of, um, you know, relationships these days can get very complex, very complicated. Truthfully, to be told, I've been divorced twice myself, so I can say that um, at this point in my life, I am single, I am celibate by the gifts of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I have a, um, you know, it's a, a simple walk, a simple life that I lead. There's definitely pros and cons to everything that we're handed in life, and, um, you know, I have tremendously been blessed with some great children from my second marriage that I love with all my heart that I just am so proud of. Um, They are just the apple of my eye, if you will. And I enjoy thoroughly being a father to them, being an example, hopefully, that they can look up to uh, at this time in their life, as well as for the rest of their lives. And I will, again, I don't sit here in any type of position, you know, (laughs) my exes will definitely tell you, they'll probably have their ears perked up if they ever heard this particular episode. But, you know, again, I'm not, uh, um, thankfully, I have peace with my exes at this point, thank God, you know, by his grace and by his blessing. But it's after many years of um, contention many years of hurt, pain, and, you know, to this day, some things still hurt or are still painful. Um, But, you know, I mean, that's part of life. Excuse me. That's part of having relationships and, you know, having failed relationships, quote unquote. Again, look, I see nothing in life, no experience as a failure per se. I do take I believe that we can learn from every life experience we have, although, you know, they may not be successful, quote unquote, by standards that are set by whomever. But I will say that, again, um, I, I do count everything as a blessing. I count it as a blessing to be able to have the experience to be able to speak help and counsel friends and other people that I know in various situations that they find themselves in in life. So, um, and also to be able to help, you know, and guide my, my own children, um, someday when they are in relationships and dating, when they're old enough to do that and, um, to, to be able to share my knowledge and wisdom and my life experience with them. So, you know, if nothing else, they don't make the same mistakes I made and that they, um, can have successful long-term, you know, godly relationships in the future. You know, I don't know what my own personal future holds. I definitely definitely know and believe in my heart that if, you know, a woman is in my life and that is a um, sanctified by God, and if I do get married, I (laughs) fully intend on third time being a charm, quote unquote, and that will be it. But, you know, I will say with my life experience, I've been um, definitely um, given the uh, uh, experience and the keys and the um, knowledge to know what to look for in a future spouse. And again, I fortunately, I place all that in God's hands and say, Lord, 
not my will, your will be done. Again, the Lord keeps me in every way that he needs to in life. I walk around very peacefully and um, I can fortunately say that I view, you know, as we're called to do, I view all women as, you know, sisters. <laughs> so, you know, in a sense, I can have a lot of peace about, you know, anything in my life. So, um, yeah, let's flip back. Like I was saying prior to that little, um, that little, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> deviation from our topic here, but I just want to give a little, my bit of my personal background and experience with this topic in particular, but let's look at, um, again, where the Pharisees kind of misinterpret that law in Deuteronomy. We're going to look at chapter 24 verses one through four, where it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanliness in her, that word uncleanliness can be stated indecency, literally nakedness of a thing. Um, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination or detestable thing before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So we're going to look at the notes for that passage because, again, we're in Deuteronomy. We're going through. This is the law of God. This is the law that we always hear spoken of in the New Testament, um, which was very, there were hundreds of very specific things addressing every area of life. And again, this is the Old Testament law that the um, Jews, the Israelites were to follow as a guide in order to live under godly standards. But as we're going to see, and as we saw in Jesus's passage initially, Jesus and God never ordained or intended for divorce to ever be part of any marriage. It's an abomination for divorce to happen because we'll see as we study this topic that God, again, like we looked at in the last episode, I mean, marriage is the original institution of relationships between two human beings, the two humans first created, man and woman, Adam and Eve, to be married and to be companions, which that is, again, that dates back to the Garden of Eden, which is, um, and it supersedes the relationship between parent and child. So it's a very unique intricate thing that God loves. He compares the church to Jesus's bride, Jesus being the bridegroom, which we're also going to look at in this study. But um, again, divorce is never something that God intended for marriage. But again, these were laws that they were laid out to explain a particular situation in life 
And although it was allowed by God, it was never intended to be a to be a um, part of life or the marriage experience. God's intent is for once you have those vows made and stated that you follow through with those vows till death do you part. That's why it's extremely important that you pick and choose your mate very carefully because realize this, that person is going to be involved in every facet of your life. So if you have one doubt, one iota, one jot, if you will, <laughs> um, of doubt or questioning, get everything out in the open and worked out prior to taking those vows. And if it turns out that that person is not someone you see yourself with for your entire life, this is not a whimsical decision. This is not something that you just go into on a, you know, the high of a relationship, on the honeymoon phase of a relationship. That's why it's very important to take your time, get to know that person over a long period of time. We are commanded, obviously, you should not be having physical relationships prior to marriage because that does nothing but cloud your view and judgment of that person. So that's to be enjoyed after the marriage for a very good reason. Because, again, if you can be best friends with that person without the physicality, then the physical side of things will just enhance that relationship once you've both decided to commit to each other under the sanctity of marriage. So let's look at the note here again in my Spirit-Filled Life New King James Version Bible for Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. This passage does not provide divine sanction for divorce. Rather, it simply recognizes that divorce was practiced among the Israelites. The requirement of certificate of divorce for a wife had the effect of nullifying all the husband's rights to the dowry she had brought into the marriage. Again, quickly just stopping there. All of these things, the dowry, things like that, they're all from a, a culture that we, in Western culture anyway, in America anyway, I'm addressing specifically. We, we do not necessarily have those same customs here. So a lot of the certificate of marriage, uh, certificate of divorce, for example, again, this was, you know, we do have different um, laws that we follow once we get divorced and, you know, there's different arrangements that have to be made, custody, um, you know, um, different things of that nature. But at the same time, any child support, any alimony, you know, they're, but they're not the same as these dowries, for example, where, you know, a man would marry a woman and be, uh, you know, blessed with different gifts or different plots of land, whatever it may have been back then or to this very day, there, there still exists 
And um, again, it's it's a very important thing because once you engage in those things, then you have to, once you tie yourself with that person, then this basic certificate of divorce and this divorce process is basically untying all of those things, you know, and look, it's an ugly thing. Again, I highly caution you. If you have any doubts, I look, I, I'm not going to get into the details, but just look, if you have any doubts, if you have any thoughts, any second thoughts, make sure you have a clear mind going into a marriage before you even do and go and follow through with it. There's a great line by Ben Franklin, um, which he said, um, have your eyes wide open before you get married so you can have them half closed after you get married. So, you know, it's just a little nugget of knowledge there from good old Mr. Franklin. But, um, you know, again, it, it's a very wise thought and approach to making sure you have every area of your life examined with that person before and you're comfortable with it before you enter into that holy matrimony, as we call it. Because to this day, even in this fallen country of America and society that we live in, people still supposedly take an oath before God to be husband and wife um, until death do us part. So that's why that's there. It's not just to be said, it's to be taken seriously. And again, that's why I personally am in a very um, committed state to the Lord to say, God, not my will, your will be done. And if that happens in the future, if nothing else from my past experience, I can say I definitely know what I'm looking for in the future. So um, let's continue here with a note here again for Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. When Jesus discussed this passage with the Pharisees, he declared that Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of human hearts, though God never intended for divorce to occur. Amen. So again, we're talking about here, we're talking about although it was in the law and it was outlined by Moses and declared and it's in Deuteronomy, it's in the Torah, that it was never God's intention for divorce to occur. But because we're fallen, because we're in a cursed state in the flesh, then our hearts become hardened. And instead of being, you know, um, obedient to the Lord and honoring those vows, people want to just break their vows and go off and find a, <laughs> the folly of thinking that breaking up with someone and divorcing them and going out to be with someone else is going to solve all your problems. That's very foolish, very um, juvenile thinking. And it's really, again, not confronting the problem within yourself or within the um, marriage, but thinking that running out outside of the marriage is going to solve anything. Again, as one who's been there, it's a very foolish approach. I highly caution against it. So, all right, let's look quickly here at, um, we're going to flip up to Jeremiah chapter three. We're going to look at verses eight and nine, actually. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, 
I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. This is God talking about, again, God compares his relationships with Israel and with the church in the New Testament to a marriage type of relationship. We'll look at the notes here for, again, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Put her away is a reference to the exile, a literal enactment of the divorce proceedings, which included the giving of a certificate. Committed adultery with stones and trees, worship of pagan gods. So again, when we fall into idolatry, any form of it at all, it is highly offensive to God and it causes us to withdraw from God and God withdraws from us for a season in a certain respect. So quickly there, looking at that um, note and where it says that the Israelites committed and Judah uh, committed adultery with stones and trees. We're actually going to quickly look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 27, which gives that some clarity. Saying to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave birth to me, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Again, the whole Old Testament is basically a picture of God's correction, his forgiveness, his redemption of Israel, his people. And as you can see, at this time, Israel had turned their back to God. They turned to idolatry. And looking at the note here for, again, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 27, the tree or Asherah and stone or sacred pillar were used in pagan cult practices. The Israelites were ordered to destroy them, but much of the time they joined in their use. So, you know, I just found that interesting. But again, this is basically talking about how God um, had handed at a time Israel a certificate of divorce, essentially, because, again, God treats is God in the Old Testament treated Israel as his bride. And in the New Testament, Jesus, it's spoken about several times where the church is the bridegroom of Christ. So speaking of that, we are going to actually look at some verses that declare, you know, and kind of clarify a little bit this idea of, again, Jesus being the bridegroom of the church and that, you know, it's a pretty cool picture. It's a very intimate picture, obviously. And um, let's look again um, at some particular verses that kind of discuss that. We're going to jump up all the way to Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 19 and we're going to look at verses 7 through 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to hear it was granted, 
or excuse me, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Looking at the notes here, for again, Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. In the Old Testament, Israel is called God's wife. But in the New Testament, this metaphor is transferred to the church. Granted fine linen by God's grace, the righteous acts, the good works that are the fruit of being justified by the faith in Jesus Christ. Marriage supper of the Lamb is the fellowship of eternal blessedness foreshadowed by the Lord's Supper rather than a literal meal. So um, continuing there, we're going to jump up now to Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. For God will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are the true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So again, I just wanted to look in chapter two, or excuse me, in verse two there of um, chapter 21 of Revelation, where it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So again, the way the Lord uses this picture of marriage, such an intimate picture, but such an awesome, um, again, analogy or visual to describe his relationship with his people, just shows the intimacy of what marriage is intended to be and also shows the seriousness that God takes marriage to, again, use this illustration to paint the picture of his relationship of him with his people. Let's look at the notes here for, again, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. It says, The holy city is the bride of Christ, the church, as well as the abode of the saints. Their tabernacle and the accompanying description of the bliss of the saints indicate the unbroken fellowship between God and his people. 
because of his presence there is no more sorrow. God proclaims the completion of the new as well as the destruction of the old. So again, just an awesome picture there. God using, you know, this very intimate picture of him being the um, bridegroom of the church, being his bride. And it just shows the intimacy and the, again, the, um, the uh, I guess, esteem that God has for this institution of marriage, which is why Jesus, again, is so um, blatant and um, condemning of this idea of divorce, because once, you know, he brings two people together, it is a lifetime commitment. So um, we're going to look again, just finishing up, finishing up in Revelation here one more time where, you know, the church and Christ are compared and, you know, outlined and kind of drawn as the bridegroom and the bride, the husband and wife, if you will. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 to 17. And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And then looking at the notes here again for that section of Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 17. The fourth witness is the Lord Jesus. Quickly, however long the era of the Spirit continues, the next act in God's universal drama is the consummation of the ages. The Alpha and the Omega. Jesus applies God's title to himself. All who have obeyed the Lord may enter the city, but all others are excluded. The root and the offspring. Jesus is not only the promised king of the lineage of David, whose kingdom would be established forever, but the creator of David. The bright and morning star connotes the dawn of the new eternal day. Finishing up here with the note for verse 17. The fifth, sixth, and seventh witnesses are the spirit, the bride, and him who hears. The climactic focus of, of the revelation is an evangelistic appeal. Come, addressed to those who still remain outside. The spirit without the bride does not issue the invitation. The bride without the spirit cannot. So, again, just wanted to point out some more, you know, verses where Jesus definitely takes marriage very seriously. 
And, you know, once he becomes our savior, he says he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's the exact same love, commitment, and care we should have for each other when we enter into the state of marriage. And now we're going to get into some some passages and verses addressing um, marriage and divorce as outlined here first in Matthew, and then we're going to finish up in 1 Corinthians, where Paul just does, of course, an amazing job looking at um, this idea of marriage. So again, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he, Jesus, answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Let's look at the notes here for Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. The rabbis were divided in the interpretation of the law concerning divorce, which we already looked at. That was that verse in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. The conservatives of the school of Shammai held that adultery was the only ground for divorce, while the liberals of the school of Halil advocated divorce for just any reason, even personal dislike. God's design is that marriage be an abiding state. Moses' law was a concession to human weakness and was not given to make divorce easier. Rather, it was a restriction of easy divorce, giving the wife some protection. So again, that certificate of divorce, once the man handed her that, that basically um, made him ineligible to receive the dowry for the marriage. So um, th- that would go back to the wife. So, you know, even God in his glory back way early in the law, you know, he sort of even the table, if you will, when it came to divorce. And even that's a bit of a, you know, modern day, um, you know, support, um, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, that was basically, again, if the man wanted to divorce the wife, the penalty was he um, gave up the dowry or any inheritance he would have gained from the wife's family um, 
because he, again, separated himself and basically divorced the woman. So that went back to her and the family and he lost his right or any say in that, um, in that gain, so to speak. And then um, looking quickly at the note here for Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, where the disciples say to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. This note here says, according to the disciples, it is better not to marry if there is no escape from a bad marriage. So again, you know, the disciples hanging with Jesus, you know, kind of saw, um, you know, how he lived and kind of the penalties for um, entering into a unjust or unholy marriage and the penalties for breaking those marriage vows, they came to the conclusion, well, it must be better to not get married at all because, you know, they were wise enough and had enough life experience to see the ups and downs of life. And again, this is a different culture we're talking about. Culturally, the dowry was something I'm assuming was very probably valuable or probably very taken very seriously. And um, they said it might just be better to just stay single and serve the Lord. Because again, we're talking about this in the context of staying within God's parameters. And also they're right there with Jesus. So, you know, they're probably assuming, look, we're going to serve you. We're going to do this. And, um, you know, what? it's better to stay single and not even have to deal with those issues than to have the um, entire, uh, you know, um, complexity, if you will, of marriage to deal with. And then God forbid, if it doesn't work out, then you have to go through this entire divorce process. So again, I mean, we go through this now, believe me, divorce is the hardest. I tell people this all the time. It's the hardest time you will ever have in your life. Hands down, no doubt, easily. That is, if you're actually worth your salt, if you actually have a soul and a heart, it is a horrible thing to go through, and it takes such an emotional toll, not even talking about the legal side of it, which that that's a whole nother issue, but just the emotional toll it takes on you and the poor, innocent offspring, children that are involved, it's it's brutal. That's the only word I can use to describe it. It's just brutal. Again, we go through hard breakups in relationships. That's one thing. But having those other extra layers of having to figure out custody, child supports, alimonies, all of that, that's a whole nother layer to just the heartbreaking complexity and just breaking up a relationship to begin with. So Again, it's just very, very important to really pick and choose your partners very wisely. Make it be a one and done, and you know you'll you'll really thank yourself for a good, you know, the, again that great advice from good old Ben Franklin. You know, have your eyes wide open before marriage, so you can keep them half shut after. Very wise, simple saying, but makes a lot of sense. So we're going to look here at this uh, Kingdom Dynamics section in my Spirit-Filled Life, New King James Version Bible, where it does address this issue of divorce, and it talks directly about, again, Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Divorce is a case of a heart hardened toward God, family order. 
in this text, Jesus frankly addresses a pivotal issue. The cause of divorce is hardness of heart. Behind every broken marriage is a heart hardened against God, then hardened against one's mate. From the very beginning, God's intention for marriage was that it be for life. Realizing this, believers should exercise care in choosing a life mate. Yet no marriage will be so free of differences and difficulties that it could not end up in divorce if husband and wife were deceived into following their natural inclinations. The devil will exaggerate your mate's failures and inadequacies, sow suspicion and jealousy, indulge your self-piety, insist that you deserve something better, and hold out the hollow promise that things would be better with someone else. But hear Jesus' words, and remember, God can change hearts and remove all hardness if we will allow him. Very wise saying there, and speaking from experience, I can tell you, I mean, let's just, uh, I'll, it can easily be summed up as this. The grass is not always greener on the other side. So whatever you think you want to leave or whatever you think you want to get involved in, I guarantee you, again, like that very wise commentator says, Satan exaggerates. They, he amplifies your doubts. He amplifies the insufficiencies that you see in that person. Remember this, a marriage is the most intimate relationship you'll ever have. So you're going to see the good, but you're also going to see the bad and the ugly side of your spouse. So it's very important. You know, there's a saying that goes around these days, you know, it's gosh, it's a meme everywhere. You know, if you can't have me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. And there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I mean, there is a lot of truth to this reality of how quickly we can just want to run out of a relationship or run out of a marriage or get divorced and not really take the time to work on those things. But I guarantee you and promise you, it is well worth the time and little bit of effort you think you're going to put into these things to have the long-term success. And look, think about life. Anything in life worth pursuing is not easy. And everything has its ups and downs, its pros and cons, and some of the greatest successes in life and the greatest, most successful people in life have had some very hard failures and harsh failures in life. So my point with saying all that is don't ever take this easy road out. Don't ever take what Satan is lying to you and telling you. Don't buy those fake coins and think that the grass is going to be greener on the other side. I can guarantee you it's not. And from one who can speak from experience, who can definitely say, I wish I had handled situations differently in the past. Again, I'm older, wiser, and experienced now. So maybe someday I'll get to apply those things. But 
in hindsight, there were definitely ways that just as easily as we broke up and got divorced, we could have easily worked on those things and could have come out on the other side together. But, you know, again, life is what it is. You can't control another person. You can't um, you can't force someone to want to be with you. So unfortunately, if one person relationships are a two way street and relationships take two to both succeed and to fail. So, you know, if you have a ex or a, you know, someone, yeah, I'll just call them an ex. If they don't even acknowledge that they had any fault in the breakup, well, you know, if you're wise enough to be able to do some, you know, self-analyzation to be able to look in the mirror and see what you could have done differently, but they don't even acknowledge that they could have done anything differently. Well, maybe it was best for you to not be together and not, this is, I'm talking more of past experiences, not in um, marriage, fortunately, but uh, just relationships, for example. But hey, if someone you're broken up with, you know, and you're kind of having trouble getting over it, I'll say recently I had this experience where, I feel as if that other person doesn't even acknowledge that they could have done anything differently on their end. So frankly, if that's their prideful attitude that they walk through life with, then I'm pretty happy that we're not together at this point. Because again, if it wasn't one thing, it would have been another that would have broken us up. So thankfully, I can say I'm just glad it's over with and I can see some some new horizons on the future. And again, everything in life can be learned from. Life is a huge lesson. You know, again, there's certain things we don't have to fall into to learn from. But, you know, as I get to know the Lord in a deeper and deeper way, as I get into the word, as I'm blessed and privileged enough to do this Bible study, and thankful that I can do this Bible study, I can honestly and truthfully say that, um, you know, take everything, take uh, one thing I tell my kids and one thing I've applied to my own life is take the good and the learning experiences you can have from any situation and leave the bad. Don't walk around bitter. Don't walk around with hostility. Don't walk around with anger because that will only hurt you in the end. But Definitely take away, again, the learning experience from the quote-unquote failure of a relationship or just the um, failure or unsuccessful attempts at whatever it is you try to pursue in life. So, all right, like I said, we're going to finish up here in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 10 to 16, where Paul, again, he's just, you know, you, he's just an amazing apostle. He was just a man mightily used by God, full of the Holy Spirit. And he had just a very clear eyed view on everything because he, <clears throat> you know, it's, excuse me, he, <laughs> the old saying of to whom much is forgiven, you know, they are much more appreciative and grateful, if you will. And um, it is a biblical principle, basically, you know, like a tax collector, if, if, you know, a greater debt is forgiven, that person is more appreciative of the forgiveness, if you will. I believe Paul definitely fell in that category. You know, he was a harsh dude before he was saved, but I believe his conversion is a direct reflection of his gratefulness 
to God for his forgiveness that he found in Jesus Christ and his commitment to the Lord was definitely um, evidenced in his enlightenment and filling that he experienced of the Holy Spirit that allowed him to be so, again, so knowledgeable and so um, just incredibly insightful in so many different areas and things. And um, hey, it allowed him to be the um, basically the apostle to the Gentiles like myself, who, you know, outside of him, there weren't there were people going around and, you know, doing missionary trips. But he was the one who just really just <laughs> gave it all so that God could use him in any way that he chose to. And thankful that he used Paul the way he did. So here we're looking at the marriage vows, uh, keeping your marriage vows. This is again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 16. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, not him, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Looking at the notes here for, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, it says, Not I, but the Lord. Jesus did not address every possible marriage detail. He did, however, ask his disciples to follow God's original creation design and never to sever the oneness of their marriage bond. A Christian couple is to bear witness to the world by keeping marriage indocible. They represent the truth of covenant love and should live and grow in a spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation. Having dealt with the ideal marriage, Paul, realizing the reality of stresses and human failure, mentions the permissibility of divorce. But even if she does depart, in see verse 11, this permitted divorce has a strict regulation. No adultery, meaning there can most likely be no remarriage in this case except to the one from whom she was previously divorced. Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. See again, verse 11. It is not clear why Paul addresses this from the woman's perspective, but the principle applies to both genders. Whereas this section forms the major Pauline statement on the issues of divorce and remarriage among Christians. It does not exhaust all the Bible has to say about the issues. 
And then looking at the notes here for, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, to the rest. This section deals with the marriage between a believer and a non-believer. Jesus did not rule on this, so Paul must respond in his apostolic authority. Marriages in which one partner later becomes a Christian are valid and must remain intact. Any separation must be initiated by the unbelieving partner. The ultimate reason for keeping a mixed marriage together is the holy influence of the believer's life on the unbelieving partner, resulting in the possible salvation of the entire household. When an unbeliever initiates divorce beyond a believer's control, the believer is free from the relationship and is not under bondage to keep it intact. Paul is silent concerning remarriage in such a situation. So, you know, this definitely brings to mind a very important um, area, and that would be um, the area of being unequally yoked. I mean, this should sort of go without saying, but um, you should not even entertain engaging in any type of relationship if you are a Christian with someone who is not a Christian. If you are not married to that person, then do not even think about, again, getting involved with someone who is not a Christian. It is called being unequally yoked. We will look at this topic in more depth probably later on down the road at some point in a different study. But Jesus himself clearly warns against being unequally yoked with a non-believer. We are called to strictly avoid it and to plainly not do it. This will cause so many problems and so much contention in your relationship that it will eventually fail. As you can see in this particular passage, Paul is talking about a married couple in which one, either the husband or wife, become saved and is still married to a non-believer. And again, it is not grounds for divorce at that time, although they were unequally yoked, because as he ends in that passage in verse 16, he says, how do you know that eventually your spouse will not come to Christ and become a Christian? And it's also important that if you can stay together in that bondage of marriage, that you be a good influence on your children that you most likely have due to the um, obvious relationship of marriage. So again, um, I that's our look right there at our, um, you know, as we continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount, again, looking at, we're in Matthew chapter five now, continuing to work through it. Um, again, not an easy topic to speak about, not a, a, not a very pleasant topic to address for me personally, but, you know, I am, it is not by my own actions. I am not sanctified or justified by anything I do, but by the grace of God, I am saved. I am sanctified and, um, I am my, my, uh, 
I guess, thoughts, my um, teaching on this is, again, just straight from the word. And, um, you know, it's it's a topic that has to be addressed because divorce is obviously something that's very common these days. And within the church as believers is something that we need to understand. And it's obviously something Jesus spoke about. So it's very important to God. So I hope that helped. God bless and have a great day.